in many ways, the covenant God made with Abraham is an archetype of other covenants in the Bible, especially the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant has been called a covenant of grace, although grace was not lacking in the Old Covenant either. But the ultimate fulfillment of the grace promised in the covenant with Abraham was to be in the New Covenant. Inasmuch as the covenant with Abraham was a type of the New Covenant, there are a number of things the two have in common. Some of these we've discussed in previous sermons, and perhaps we'll go into them more specifically at a later time. Today, however, I want to look at the covenant God made with Abraham from another perspective. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote many years ago that many people understand, at least superficially, that the Abrahamic covenant prefigures in some way salvation that comes through Christ and His sacrifice. However, almost all have overlooked another very important aspect of that covenant, namely the national material blessings promised to Abraham's descendants who were to inherit the covenant promises. Understanding these promises and this aspect of the covenant, as Mr. Armstrong taught, is the master key that unlocks the understanding of biblical prophecy, at least uh, unlocks the understanding of a great deal of biblical prophecy that otherwise remains indiscernible to most people. In Genesis 1 and verse, uh, Genesis 12, excuse me, in verse 1, Genesis 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Abram was the name that Abraham had before God changed his name to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice that God told Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. And that he would bless those who blessed him and curse those who curse him. And that was not just him personally, but it applied to his descendants, those who would inherit the promises of the covenant. And God went on to, t to tell Abraham that he would make his descendants an innumerable multitude, innumerable as the dust of the earth, so to speak. In other words, that they would be so numerous as to be uncountable. And they would be given the land where Abraham had gone to dwell as a stranger, the land that is often referred to in the Bible as the land of Canaan. And we read in Genesis 13 and verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and through its width, for I will give it to you. So he promised Abraham that he would give to his descendants the land and that they would be numerous, uncountable for multitude as the dust of the earth. And again, on several occasions, God promised Abraham the land encompassing much of the Middle East to his descendants. In Genesis 15 and verse 5, Genesis 15 and verse 5, 
He brought him outside. God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now, again, God told Abraham that his descendants would be an innumerable multitude as the stars of heaven. They would be innumerable. And he had brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to give him the land that he was dwelling in at that time. Then in verse 18 of chapter 15 of Genesis, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now notice here, this was not just the land of Canaan that God was promising to Abraham now. This was a much larger area than just the confines of what was commonly called the land of Canaan. He told that he told Abraham that the territory that he would be giving to him, in other words, to his descendants, would extend from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, which would include a large portion of the Middle East. Now, some commentators identify the river of Egypt that is mentioned here with the Nile River. During the reign of Solomon, his dominion stretched from the Euphrates River in the north to a river south of Gaza called the Brook of Egypt in the Bible. Another name for this same river is the Wadi El-Arish or Al-Arish, the Wadi Al-Arish. And Solomon's territory then angled from that uh, river near Kadesh Barnea to the southeast to the Red Sea. But some commentators distinguish between the brook of Egypt north of the Sinai Peninsula and the river of Egypt, believed to be the Nile. In Ezekiel 48, verse 28, the southern limit of the land allotted to the tribes of Israel is the brook of Egypt in the, the vicinity of Kadesh Barnea. Now I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Kendall to put up a map here on the wall which will show the extent of the kingdom of Israel at the time of David after he had finished his conquest and this is essentially what Solomon inherited and on this map you will see in the far north uh, is the river Euphrates and in the south you see a stream running along the southern border there. That is the brook of Egypt or the Wadi Al-Arish. And in Ezekiel 48, verse 28, where we read how God will distribute the land after Christ's return to the various nations, and, and particularly uh, speaking of Israel, how God will divide the land among the Israelites at that time. And it says in Ezekiel 48, verse 28, speaking of the southern uh, border of this division of land, it says, By the border of Gad on the south side, toward the south, the border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. The brook here, they being the brook of Egypt that is pictured there on that map. Now, the International Bible Encyclopedia under the article entitled uh, Shihor states that according to tradition, a branch of the Nile extended to the Wadi Al-Arish in ancient times. A canal had been dug from one of the channels of the Nile, and, and if you look at the Nile on a map, you'll see that when it reaches uh, near to the Mediterranean, it branches into a number of 
different uh, streams. And these various streams have tended to meander and change, some of them being filled in by sediment and new ones opened from time to time uh, over, over the centuries. And this uh, stream that used to extend to the Wadi El Arish from the Nile no longer exists. It has evidently been silted in, but there is a tradition among the Arabs that it did exist in ancient times. In any case, during the colonial period, the modern colonial period of uh, the French and English uh, colonies, France and England ruled much of North Africa and the Middle East. Britain, Britain's dominion included Egypt, included actually all of Egypt, as well as Palestine and Iraq. Now Egypt, of course, is where the Nile River is, and the Euphrates River is located in what is now called Iraq. So in modern times, England has actually ruled the area, extending from Egypt up through the Middle East into uh, up to the, to the Euphrates and beyond. In Genesis 17, verse 1, God said that he would multiply Abraham exceedingly, implying multitudes of physical descendants, as we have seen indications of in some of the other scriptures we've read. In Genesis 17, beginning with verse 1, when Abraham was or Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. He said that he would multiply him exceedingly. And he said further that he would become a father of many nations. A father of many nations. In verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And the name Abraham means essentially father of nations, or father of multitudes. Now the covenant would be established with Abraham's descendants for an everlasting covenant. And they would be given Canaan, the land of Canaan, as, as an everlasting possession. God told Abraham in verse 7 of Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. But the inheritance was not limited to Canaan only, or even to the, you might say, the extended Canaan, bordering on the brook of Egypt and the Euphrates River, or rivers. Later, as God confirmed the covenant with Abraham's grandson Jacob, he said his descendants would spread out in every direction. In Genesis 28, verse 13. Genesis 28, verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abram, Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham and the, the father of uh, Jacob. He said, The land on which you lie He's speaking here to Jacob or Israel. I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here the implication is that the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of Isaac and Jacob who inherited the covenant promises 
would spread out to encompass the globe. Not just Canaan, and not just a portion of the Middle East, but he said to the west, the east, the north, and the south. In Romans 4 and verse 13, Romans 4 and verse 13, we read this, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So here, Paul interprets the promise made to Abraham and his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Now the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is in the future when only those of Abraham's seed, that is spiritually of his seed, will inherit the earth when God's kingdom is is culminated, then only the spiritual seed of Abraham will will survive and they will inherit the earth. In fact, they'll inherit the universe. But it also implies that the spreading abroad over much of the earth of the physical heirs of the promise would occur. And these promises were not just for the Jews only, as many mistakenly believe, the Jews are only one nation, but Abraham was to be a father of many nations. In Genesis 22 and verse 17, Genesis 22 and verse 17, God said, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Notice he said, your descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. Abraham's innumerable descendants were to possess the gates of their enemies. No peoples in history have possessed more sea gates and land passages than the English-speaking English peoples of the United States and Great Britain at the height of their power. In Genesis 35... Genesis 35, beginning with verse 9, the promise was to be passed on to a nation and a company of nations descended from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, or Israel. As we read, beginning with verse 9 of Genesis 35, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and your descendants after you, I give this land. So notice he said that out of Jacob or Israel would become would come a nation and a company of nations. Not just one nation, but a nation and a company of nations. Again, this promise pertains not to the Jews, only one nation, nor to the church, but is fulfilled in a literal great nation of physical human beings possessing unusual power and blessings, along with a company or a commonwealth of nations also possessing great power and blessings. In due course of time, Abraham's wife Sarah gave birth to her son named Isaac, and he in turn later married and had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau, being the firstborn, inherited the right of the firstborn, to be the one through whom the covenant would be passed on to future generations. However, Esau regarded his birthright with disdain and sold it to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. As we read in Genesis 25, verse 29. Genesis 25, verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field and he was weary, and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom 
uh, is a Hebrew word which means red. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Later, through deceit, Jacob also received the blessing, which would normally have accompanied the birthright. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 27. The blessing included all sorts of material abundance along with military and political dominance over the nations. As we read in Genesis 27, beginning with verse 28, Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. So we're talking here about material blessings. We're talking about abundant moisture necessary to grow crops, a, a land that is well watered, a land that is fertile, the fatness of the earth an earth that produces an abundance of material goods and blessings. Plenty of grain and wine. Now fatness of the earth could include things like oil as well as minerals, as well as the produce of the earth and so forth. Cattle and so forth. And it goes on to mention here specifically plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. So this is talking about dominance over other nations and peoples. Let nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be those who bless you. Now, this is not talking about something small or insignificant. This is, this is speaking of tremendous blessings on a worldwide scale. And those who would bless the descendants of Jacob would be blessed. Those who cursed his descendants would be cursed. Jacob had 12 sons. The oldest one named Reuben disqualified himself from being the recipient of the birthright. The birthright normally went to the oldest son. But Reuben disqualified himself from being recipient of the birthright by committing adultery with his father's concubine. So the birthright was passed down through Joseph and his sons. Joseph was the oldest of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Ra uh, Jacob had actually four wives if you want to count his uh, concubines as wives. And he had children from four different women. So the twelve tribes of uh, Jacob, or Israel, were descended from Jacob and his four wives or his two wives and two concubines. Rachel was the wife that Jacob had intended to marry originally. He was tricked into marrying another woman first, but he really actually only intended to marry Rachel to begin with. And she was childless until late in her life and she had a, a, a son named Joseph, her oldest son, later had another son named Benjamin. But the scepter, the line of descendants leading to the Messiah, the king of kings, was given to Judah, one of the other sons of Jacob. But the birthright promise, the material part of the promises, the blessings that we've been reading about, we're not given, we're not promised to the Jews, but to the descendants of Joseph. As we read in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Now, First Chronicles 5 is, uh, is, is essentially devoted to uh, the genealogy of the Israelites, but it mentions here parenthetically that, that the, uh, the birthright 
was given not to Reuben, but to Joseph. And it goes on to say in verse 2, Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph. So the, in a sense, the birthright was divided into two parts, the scepter and the birthright promises of material blessings. And Judah retained the scepter, while Joseph retained the birthright blessings of power and great material blessings and so forth. Near the time of his death, Jacob blessed the two sons of Joseph, and his name, the name Israel, was to be named upon them. Now Israel was a name given to all of the twelve tribes, but it was to be especially associated with the sons of Joseph. And their names were Ephraim and Manasseh. And we read in this blessing that was, was uttered by Jacob as he was near death that Ephraim was to become a company of nations and Manasseh was to become a great nation. In Genesis 48 verse 14, Genesis 48 verse 14, Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, this is as he was uttering this blessing, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people... And he shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. His descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, By you Israel will bless. Saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. End of quote. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were tribes of Israel, and they had their specific allotments in the way the land was divided among the various tribes of Israel when God brought Israel into the land of Canaan. Manasseh was given their portion of territory and the people of Ephraim were given their portion of territory in the, in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. But neither of them became an, an independent and great nation prior to the destruction of ancient Israel and their captivity. In the, in the 8th century B.C. Ephraim did not, did not become an independent nation. Manasseh did not become an independent nation. And Ephraim certainly did not become a multitude of nations. So this prophecy was not fulfilled in ancient times. Ephraim and Manasseh were the leading tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, but they were not independent nations in their own right. When we read in the Bible the prophecies pertaining to Israel in the end time, however, they're speaking primarily, although not necessarily exclusively, of these two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, the name of Israel was to be named on, uh, to, to be named, uh, placed on the heads of Ephraim and Manasseh. And that doesn't mean the other tribes could not legitimately be called Israel, but especially Israel was in the, in the prophecies 
of the latter days was to pertain largely to the nations that were the dominant nations of Israel at the end time. And that's Ephraim and Manasseh. In Genesis 49, Israel foretold to his sons what would befall their descendants in the last days. That is in the era preceding the end of this age. In Genesis 49 and verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. That is, the, the, the days uh, approaching the end of this age. The latter part of this age. The last days of this age. In his prophecy concerning the tribe of Judah, he said that Judah was to be a lion's whelp. That is, like a cub lion, small but ferocious. And we see that fulfilled today in the, in the Jewish nation of Israel, which was reestablished in Palestine in, I believe it was 1948. And they are a powerful nation, even though they're very small in numbers and territory. In Genesis 49 verse 8, he said in this prophecy, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart. The scepter is a symbol of, of uh, royal power or authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. David was of the house of Judah. Solomon, all the kings of, of the nation of Judah, after it was separated from the northern kingdom, all of the kings were of the house of David. All were of the tribe of Judah. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. The scepter would not depart, it says, to the coming of Shiloh, which is a reference to Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. And speaking not here just about His first coming, He's talking primarily here about His second coming when He will assume the throne of, of Israel after He comes the second time to establish His rule over the earth. And we reread in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder, and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The royal houses of Europe, including the royal house of Great Britain, trace their lineage back to Judah and the house of David. And so at all times, since David was given the promise that, there would not, that he would not lack a descendant to, to rule over some portion of the house of Israel, from that time to this, there have in some place in the world been people of Israel being ruled over by descendants of David, of the house of Judah. Joseph, however, was to become an exceedingly powerful and wealthy group of nations, as uttered in this prophecy in Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, verse 22, it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Now this implies spreading out. A nation that is fruitful and, and uh, prolific and spreading out. Goes on to say, The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. So it tells us that there would be many enemies to contend with. But... His bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel.
by the power of, or by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Now notice here it says that the hands of Joseph were to be made strong by God and that God would be his helper. It says, By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath. It's talking about mineral wealth, including oil and various precious metals and so forth. Talking about abundant rainfall. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. In other words, uh, prolific childbearing. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. So here we see pictured a people who would spread out to the far places of the earth and who would be abundantly blessed and supremely powerful as these prophecies were to be fulfilled in the latter days. The Bible is filled with prophecies centered on Israel in the end time. And most, most of the prophecies of the Bible pertain to the end of the age. Many of them have a dual application pertaining to at least a former and a latter day fulfillment. But the vast number of prophecies in the Bible center on the latter days and especially on what would befall the nations of Israel. To make sense of those prophecies, one has to know the identity of Israel in modern times. And in order to do that, we need to look for a nation and a company of nations sharing a common heritage who have in the latter days been dominant in wealth and power. The only nations fitting this description are the United States and the nations of the British Commonwealth. There is an abundance of historical evidence long suppressed also that the root stock of these nations are descendants of ancient Israel. And we've discussed this in previous sermons. We won't take the time to go into that in detail now, but there is uh, plenty of evidence that the Anglo-Saxon peoples, the peoples who came out of Great Britain, and parts of Western Europe into the British Isles and the United States later were descendants of, of the Israelite tribes, specifically of Ephraim and Manasseh. There has been no nation or empire in history greater and of greater worldwide influence than the British Empire. This is from the New World Encyclopedia. Concerning the British Empire, the New World Encyclopedia, I'm quoting, quote, the British Empire is the most extensive empire in world history and for a time was the foremost global power. By 1921, the British Empire ruled a population of between 470 and 570 million people. Approximately one quarter of the world's population at that time. It covered about 14.3 million square miles, about a quarter of the Earth's total land area. Though it has now mostly evolved into the Commonwealth of Nations, British influence remains strong throughout the world. In economic practice, legal and governmental systems, sports, and the English language itself. On the one hand, the British developed a sense of their own destiny and moral responsibility in the world, believing that many of her colonial subjects required guidance, that it was British rule that prevented anarchy and chaos. Positively, the educational system sponsored by the British 
promulgated an awareness of such values as freedom, human dignity, equality. Even though those taught often observed that the, their colonial masters did not practice what they preached. Negatively, peoples and resources were exploited at Britain's advantage and more often than not at the cost of her overseas possessions. At least that's the outlook of this author. Goes on to say here, many British thought th their ascendancy providential, part of the divine plan. Now, notice this statement from this encyclopedia, the New World Encyclopedia. Anyone who believes that history is not merely a series of accidents might well see God's hand behind the creation of an empire that, despite all the ills of an imperial system imposed on unwilling subjects, also left a cultural, literary, legal, and political legacy that binds people of different religions and races together. End of quote. Though the expansion of, the, of British control and influence over various parts of the world can be traced back to the beginning of the 17th century, it wasn't until the early 19th century that it became the dominant colossus that it remained for a century or more. Throughout the 19th century, the British controlled the world's sea lanes and the Indian Ocean was known as a British lake. From the website BritishEmpire.co.uk, we read this, and I'm quoting here, at its peak, the British Empire was the largest formal empire that the world had ever known. As such, its power and influence stretched all over the globe, shaping it in all manner of ways. Now notice here the reach of the influence of the British Empire. It was a global empire. It affected nations all over the world, even those parts of the world over which the British did not have direct rule, were heavily influenced by the British culture and system of government and, for that matter, their religion and so forth. Now, I'm not quoting here, but in 1783, the British lost control of the 13 North American colonies that began the formation of the United States of America. Despite the loss of the American colonies, however, the British Empire continued to expand and grow in power and influence. So, I'll ask Mr. Kendall to put map two up to show the empire, the uh, parts that are colored in red there are areas of the world over which at some point in time the British ruled as a part of their empire. Now, this does not represent the uh, nations ruled at a singular, a single particular time because as we've mentioned before, some of these areas were ruled for a while and then uh, were uh, were uh, no longer a part of the empire and then others were added. But all of these areas in red were at one time or another over the past several centuries ruled by Great Britain as a part of her empire. And you can see the worldwide scope of British influence there. The uh, website BritishEmpire.co.uk goes on to say territories were added during the Napoleonic Wars and then throughout the 19th century and even into the beginning of the 20th century. It is this predominantly Victorian empire, the Victorian description corresponds essentially with the 19th century during the reign of Queen Victoria who ruled for I believe over 50 years during the 1800s or the 19th century, and so it is called the Victorian period. And uh, it is this predominantly Victorian empire that most people associate with the British Empire. 
The British Empire expanded and contracted at various times during its history. It became fairly large with the ever-expanding American colonies in the 17th and 18th centuries, particularly after, particularly after the defeat of the French in the Seven Years' War. The American Revolution lost much but not all of this territory because Canada remained a part of the British Empire, but the expansion of British interests in India filled this vacuum. It really was the victory in the, the Napoleonic Wars that allowed the British to hover, uh, to hoover up naval bases and create toeholds tow across the world. These would generally provide the jumping off points for the massive expansion in the Victorian period. Advances in medicine, transport, and communication systems helped make even more of the world accessible with Africa providing the last spur to European imperialism in the latter half of the 19th century. World War I appeared to add yet more colonies to the British Empire in the form of mandates. I have created a list, this is the author of this website speaking, I've created a list of the populations and sizes of the colonies in 1924, a territorial high point of empire. Although economically the empire would begin to enter its period of decline in this interwar years period, but it was still estimated at, that, at this time, this is in 1924, it was still estimated at this time to cover between a quarter and a third of the globe and that it represented an area over 150 times the size of Great Britain itself. End of quote. We might also add that Great Britain and the United States were leaders in the Industrial Revolution and in scientific and technical discovery and development. Along with the growth in area and population, the British economy grew exponentially and the standard of living for all classes grew, especially during the 19th and 20th centuries. Britain was the world's wealthiest nation by far during the 19th century, eventually to be surpassed by the United States in the 20th century. Although, again, there were some who were super rich, the wealth spread to all social and economic groups in Britain and America. This is from the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, an article entitled Standards of Living and Modern Economic Growth by John V.C. Nye. And he says, I'm quoting here, in the most successful countries, the average citizen now enjoys a material standard of living that would have made the greatest king of 200 years ago turn green with envy. The official measurement of national output, gross domestic product, shows that the average American's annual income in the year 2000 was five times as high as the annual income of his counterpart in 1890 and 12 times as high as the average American income in the middle of the 19th century. So in the year 2000, according to this economist's calculations, the average income of the typical American was 12 times the income of an American in the middle of the 19th century. He goes on to say, when we read about the great civilizations of ancient Egypt and Rome, or of the Aztecs and the Incas, we tend to compare them with the empires of Britain or the growth of the United States. This comparison judged in economic terms is highly misleading. Although the great civilizations in Egypt and Rome were able to construct big buildings, the vast majority of their citizens by today's standards were dirt poor. What is unusual about the developed world since the 1700s 
is that beginning with Britain and then spreading to all of Western Europe, North America, and much of Asia, the population rose dramatically and was accompanied by an even more sustained rise in income per person. End of quote. The economic blessings that began with Britain and then the United States have spread to much of the world to one extent or another. And this is all traceable to the Industrial Revolution and, and the prosperity that began in, especially in the 1800s in Britain and then the United States. This is one way in which God's promise to Abraham has been partially fulfilled where Abraham was told in Genesis 28 verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessings of Abraham have accrued not just to the peoples of Britain and the United States, the peoples of Ephraim and Manasseh, or the other nations of Israel, but which, which are located primarily in, in uh, Western and Northwestern Europe. But all nations have benefited from these blessings. Not to the same extent necessarily as Britain and America, but all nations have been lifted up and, and blessed economically, and that includes every nation on the face of the earth by the prosperity of Britain and America. From, again, from the BritishEmpire.co.uk, we read the Second World War would see much imperial territory threatened or temporarily lost. Despite being on the winning side, the empire would not recover from the geopolitical shifts caused by the Second World War and would enter into a period of terminal decline. India was the first and largest area to be shed, and then the Middle East and then Africa. Various Caribbean and Pacific possessions held on a little longer most of these also went their separate way. The last of the major colonies to be lost was that, is, uh, that of Hong Kong in 1997, end quote. So the British reached the peak of their power in the 18th and, I mean, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but now it is in serious decline. In fact, the empire for all practical purposes has ceased to exist. As Britain began to, to decline in the 20th century, the United States reached the high point of its power and influence, especially during and following World War II. While World War II ruined Britain financially, the United States actually grew wealthier during the war and following the war and reached her zenith of power and influence shortly thereafter. Starting from 13 colonies hugging the east coast of North America, the United States multiplied rapidly in population as it, as it expanded across North America. By the early 20th century, the United States had become alongside Britain an economic and industrial powerhouse. And by the time of World War II was by far the most productive nation industrially and richest in the world. But American influence is not what it once was any more than Britain's is. In various ways the United States is being challenged and eclipsed in terms of economic power and influence by other nations and combinations of nations. Not only was the development and rise of the British Empire and the American nation from the descendants of ancient Israel prophesied, but also their downfall is prophesied. We read earlier that the blessings that were given to the descendants of Abraham 
were a result of Abraham's obedience. In Genesis 22 and verse 18, Genesis 22 and verse 18, God said, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God said to Isaac in Genesis 26 and verse 5, Genesis 26 and verse 5, I will be with you and bless you for you and your descendants. I will give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. End of quote. But God also warned us that if we disregarded His laws, He would take away the blessings He had given and replace them with curses. Eventually, He said, if we do not repent... He said in Leviticus 26 and verse 33, Leviticus 26 and verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 20, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 20, When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. We have eaten and filled ourselves, and we have grown fat, and we are turning and have turned to other gods. Then it shall be when the many evils and troubles have come upon them, going on in Deuteronomy 31, that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Notice God knew the people. He knew their inclinations. He knew their nature. He could easily predict what they were likely to do, what they would do. Moses went on to say to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 31, in verse 29, Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, Moses said, For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil. Notice he said evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger through the work of your hands. We go on with these prophecies in Deuteronomy 32 verse 15 but Jeshurun which is a name for Israel grew fat and kicked you grew fat you grew thick you are obese then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation is it any wonder that the name Jesus Christ has become a curse word in our society that people who have any semblance of religion are often ridiculed and, and uh, hooted at. That the name of Christ is no longer given the deference it once was. God foretold that in the height of our prosperity we would forsake God. And we are at the height of our prosperity or near it. But God said that would be the very time when we would forsake Him. Totally. The nations descended from Israel have not really known God ever in the fullest sense. For the most part at least, some have. 
a very few have, but most of the people descended from Israel have never truly known God fully, never really been converted fully to God. But what knowledge of God and His laws have been known are being increasingly scorned and abandoned. We as a people are not drawing nearer to God, but we are removing ourselves further from Him. And as a result, He will continue to remove Himself further from us. This is what prophecy tells us. As these things happen, it's vital that we understand why. It's vital that we understand where our blessings have come from. It's vital that we understand why they are going to be removed. It's fitting that the church of God should include this important teaching, providing the key to understanding Bible prophecy as a part of the message of the gospel.